Copy this. Big Thinking Local Climate Action. London's Deputy Mayor for Environment and Energy, Shirley Rodriguez, has been very involved in developing the city's environment strategy to achieve a zero carbon greener London. She acknowledges that the mayor cannot achieve these objectives alone and that projects like Energy Garden not only create new green spaces, but also enable Londoners to get involved in renewable energy programs that benefit their local area. So let's find out what's really happening across the London Overground Rail Network at the stations where transport, green space, locally produced renewable energy and local communities meet and cross over. I'm Rick Casali. And I'm Amanda Carpenter, and we are your hosts for Copy This, a new podcast from Carbon Copy about big thinking, local climate action. Our guests today are Agamemnon Alterio, who is the CEO and founder of Energy Garden, and Charlotte Whitfield, who's the Customer Experience Director of Arriva Rail London, which operates the London Overground Network on behalf of Transport for London. Agamemnon and Charlotte, welcome. Really nice to have you at the programme today. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I guess when people think about London transport and the overground network, they probably don't think gardens. They probably think dusty railway stations, possibly litter, standing, waiting for their train. It's not necessarily a place you'd go for kind of joy and inspiration. But but under your guidance and care, the two of you, you've transformed that, haven't you, that image? And you've created spaces that are welcoming, green and beneficial for the communities. Agamemnon, tell us about Energy Garden. What is it? Paint a picture for our listeners. Well, right off the bat, I just want to say that way beyond Charlotte and myself, there are thousands of people that every day come together. And that's literally what Energy Garden is. It's a cooperative a community benefit society. And that's so that it benefits more than just its members. It benefits the greater community. And our community is hundreds of thousands of people that um, frequent the stations every day. And we have um, bat huts and uh bird nests and beehives and uh, gardens and uh, biodiversity sanctuaries on the platforms of the transport uh, of London. And so what we're doing is basically inviting people to become a part of what has been uh, an urban commons, which we have not necessarily been able to integrate the local communities into. Um, and we then generate a revenue from uh, renewable energy. So transport is the biggest emitter of uh, carbon emissions in the UK. Um, and what we're trying to do is have a conversation with the community of, uh, of customers and passengers that go the 2.4 billion passenger journeys a year on the London overground and underground. We want to give that conversation a real rich nature, which is to allow them to see one another talk about these issues that are facing us, but also have a wonderful time and enhance the world we live in. Ag, if you go back to the very first station, where did the inspiration come from in the first place? And then how did you go about trying to encourage uh, Arriva, which are obviously the people like presumably own the, the infrastructure and the platforms, to share your vision and the imagination? I have been, I guess I'm I have been to the promised land. I grew up on uh, self-sustaining um, farms and communities in, in America. And um, my mom was a teacher. My grandfather was a policeman. And they really believed in like workers' rights and unions and helped build co-op city in New York. And when I came to London about 22 years ago, what I found was 
young people who were um, disenfranchised, uh, communities who were on the wrong side of the tracks. Um, literally, quite literally, there was uh, groups that were sort of cordoned off by larger infrastructure, big roads like the Westway or, you know, infrastructure like the rail that sort of cut, divided a community. And then those on one side had more access to supermarkets and um, fresh vegetables and cheaper energy uh, to those people on the other side. And there was sort of poverty lines. Um, and so over the last 15 years, I've worked with um, communities built 16 different cooperatives. And I want to start by saying, A, every I've failed probably 15 times. Um, each one of those organizations is still running. But the point was that each time that we redid it, we made it stronger. And the idea was to address the issues of heat or eat dilemma. So fuel po people who are in fuel poverty are in food poverty. And and it started because there was really issues where I lived in, in Brixton um, on the Stockwell Road. There was the 322 bus line. And we I took that and I worked with the local community and got um, uh, people planting the bus station. And we found that there was high levels of cadmium from the road paint and there was high levels of, of uh, metals in the, in the soil. So we stopped and we began working with the overground. In 2012, on July 8th, I remember I, I went uh, and I just ripped up the, the, the black plastic, which um, uh, a defunct company uh, we don't like to talk about anymore named Carillion, um, was, was the network contractor for the rail for the then organization called Laurel, which was London Overground Rail Operations Limited. And I just pulled it up as like a passenger just minding my own business um, and started planting things. And I started talking to the station managers. At that time, it was Dave Cranston and uh, Heather. And they were amazing. And they were like, they were local people. And Dave Head was a West Indian. He said, I'm going, I've gone back to school and studying herbs and I want to, for healing. Let's plant herbs and healing. And the Laurel went, Carillion went, and Arriva came. And there are about four or five different rail operators and concession holders and, you know, the DFT, then there's network rail, then there's the concession, then there's London overground and London underground that are managed by TFL. And then there's concessions like Arriva. And we began working with them and they, it's been a beautiful process to learn all the ways. And there's been lots of pitfalls and mistakes and relearning, but I want to say that it always starts with, with um, trying, failing, and then remaking. You were a guerrilla gardener, really, weren't you, in those early days? You went out there and you ripped up the plastic out there and you planted things. But what, what I'm taking from that story, and I'm sure others are, is that you just need a spark, don't you? You need an individual or you need a, a champion who sees what you want to do and makes it happen. In your case, it was those two early station managers. But but that alone is not enough. So you do need the support of, of the, the big players, like, like Arriva Rail London, like, like Charlotte's team. Charlotte... How did you get into this? I mean, I'm sure Agamemnon could probably persuade anybody to do anything, but but how did he capture your imagination and encourage you to support the Energy Gardens project? Well, I think as part of Arriva and also as part of our concession with uh, TFL, you know, we feel really passionately about the communities that we serve at London Overground. We we orbit the sort of the outskirts of London. We go through some really challenging areas and really affluent areas. It's a real mix of people who utilise our services. And actually being part of those local communities is really important to us. And, and London Overground has you know, without question, changed parts of London where it started to serve, like the East London Line, for example. Um, so it's really important to us that we connect with our local communities and the customers that utilise those stations. 
And on top of that, you know, sustainability for us is in, um, becomes ever more increasingly important as, as time goes on. And we know that really matters not only to us, but also to our customers. And we want to be seen not to be left behind in terms of that. So I think, you know, for me, there's two elements. It's about improving the stations for the people who use them, you know, providing them a place that feels um, safe and secure. It, you know, if we know if there's flowers there, if it's if it looks nice, people are going to be less likely to graffiti it, less likely to litter, less likely for antisocial behaviour to take place. So that's really important. Um, but we also, you know, we want to give something back to our communities in terms of that improvement to the environment as well. So for us, it, you know, it, it's ticking a lot of boxes and, and you know, it, it's, a, it's a really positive thing for us to be able to do as well, for our staff as well. And Charlotte, uh, how do the staff members feel about it? Because on the one hand, I, I could imagine they feel it's a bit of a burden. You know, that now there's like a garden and there's mess and there's soil and there's people working on the platform, health and safety. So you know, it could be a headache on the one hand. Uh, are, are staff generally getting behind this or do they see it as just extra work? I think that's why we've got to be really careful when we pick the stations and the location. So it's not just about where would a garden work physically it's also about have we got the right team in place at that location staff who are engaged and who want to buy into it and um, I was just thinking earlier you know I wasn't I wasn't here in 2012 when this began but you know a recent example for me is at, at Broccoli Station I've seen one of our team members there who is in the garden every day he's coming in on his days off he's um, you know, putting his own money in because he's so desperate to make it it look better, and he, you know, and he, it's because of what he's getting back from the customers. You know, they're they're coming to him and they're saying, "Oh, this really made a difference to my day." And so I think, yeah, I think a, a, a bit of a learning or a bit of advice would be make sure you pick the right places because if you don't pick the right places with the right people, then it it may not necessarily be a success. How do the gardens work? Because, I mean, obviously you can't rely solely on the staff because even, you know, your great station manager is coming in on his days off. You know, you presumably need network of volunteers or or other community members. How how does it actually work to get the work done? And, and, you know, how do you you reach out to those people? So I think the most important thing to clarify is that Energy Garden is a not-for-profit. It's a community benefit society. And we've raised over two and a half million pounds um, to deliver the financial, technical, legal, human resources, security risk stuff, all the things that that Ariva need, whether it's a, a glint and glare assessment, um, health and safety risk assessments, um, uh, structural impact assessments on the different hills and uh, walls. All that's been paid for through grant funding from from the National Lottery, from Friends Provident Foundation, from 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 charitable trusts um, across across the UK, and we've been able to deliver that uh, the sort of um, through three ways. The first one is that that funding then supports full time staff, a technical officer, a legal officer, game engagement officers, a biodiversity lead, um, a, you know, all those elements. Then we have the engagement officers, which work with teams of people. We have uh, uh, over 150 uh, people every day working on multiple gardens who are like volunteers, maybe they're two hours or four hours. There are um, touch points all along the way, but the, it, the, the work is delivered by the, by the engaged individuals that live there. You know, it's, if anything, we've come, we've come into a, an interesting time when COVID hit, there was a great deal of older people who had more time uh, to spend at the gardens and they 
um, dispersed and, and spent a lot more time at home, more sheltered from the pandemic. Whereas there was a bunch of younger people who were furloughed in their early 20s, 30s, and they came out in the droves. We had more people uh, during the pandemic because uh, whether it was classified as, as effectively farming and gardening was was allowable. And also we work with vulnerable young people. And so we could have little pods of uh, and groups working uh, the whole time through COVID. So people were coming out, feeling engaged and involved, wearing masks, following all health and safety, but being able to, to be there. So over the last, over the last, um, you know, whatever that is, 10, 10 years, you, we've had uh, about 10,000 square meters of space on the London overground and underground cultivated um, through the hands of, of thousands of people who live in their local area. And it's, it's a 16 stage process. And then I said, like, I've been working to address food poverty and fuel poverty. First, I, there was the edible bus stop and then there was Bricks and Energy, Hackney Energy, Vox Energy, um, Repowering. These were all organizations that built a revenue stream to deliver community engagement through renewable energy. And then Energy Garden has really been how do you widen that out to a white, wider sustainability narrative around food growing? And the 16-stage process really asks people to co-produce what is in front of them. Like, we want to take these spaces, which we assume are not for us I mean, you might not have a garden in your house but we assume when you see these green spaces going past you when you're on the train it's not for you but then we ask them to co-create a design of what they'd like to see and then we bring it to Arriva, we bring it to transfer for london we bring it to the department for transport and say look how can we rethink this how can we as a community as a, as the as the people who experience this urban commons integrate into that. And how do we co-produce that? What do we plant? What can we do? And that process of integrating both the ideas from local people, the staff members um, into that, presenting it to Riva, presenting it to Network Rail, presenting it to the Department for Transport, and then circling back um, and, and saying, let's then build it like an Amish barn raise. Let's <laughs> come together and everybody will build it off site, make it all in a safe way using the you know fire retardant materials and you know all the elements that would be needed in this circumstance. And then we like an IKEA frame, we assemble on site with a you know a, a bunch of people all together who've been there from the outset of selecting the spaces, talking it through, bringing ideas, iteratively going back and forth with the network provider, Ariva, to say what they can and cannot do, and then coming together in a collaborative um, uh, celebration to then plant it and then go on to harvest and, and do that regular, the four seasons, you know, bring the, the, the planting, the growing, the harvesting, and then the, um, the planning for the next year, that cycle annually uh, to the people. And it's a collaborative, co-production that is enabled. I think that co-creation is so powerful, not only in terms of ownership and bringing more and more people on board, but also I imagine that the outcome is really a reflection of the different communities themselves and also the different staff members at the different stations. So in, a, in what way does that translate? Do people end up choosing different things to plant, different designs? Like, How do you see some of the characters of the different communities and the stations reflected in the in the co-creation and what the output looks like every every garden is different and that's 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 a beautiful thing like the process is the same so having the an iterative collaborative process allows for each community to do that so for instance um uh it, well charlotte will have some examples 
I have some examples. Um, I was just sharing with her that uh, at Bronsbury Park, when we first started in, in 2012, um, you know, there was Heather and, and Dave and we were planting things and Dave was really keen on edible herbs and, and Heather really wanted vegetables. So we were planting those things. But then there was a whole bunch of people that were in the local yoga center and there was another school that was involved and they were coming in and it sort of split off. So it was five different community groups that were then rallying around certain ideas. So we had to make a tea, like a, a indigenous tea area. We had to have a bee area. We had to have a food growing area. Then somebody's like, oh, we want renewable energy. So we have a solar water, solar powered water pumps. I mean, you, you try to come up with these solutions and that by the very nature of collaboration, it is very rare that you repeat the same garden again. The, it becomes unique to that, that space, but the process is, is clear and it can be replicated. And that's that's one of the greatest things that we have is, is a, a clear process that which can be utilized in any different place. Um, I mean, Charlotte, you might have examples as well. So I've, I've hand over to you. Yeah, I think I think for me, it's the thing that starts as the garden and then watching it grow into more and more as the local community who maybe weren't involved at the start start to get involved as well. So we've seen kind of... Um, gardens at certain locations where they started quite small and now they're like taking up almost whole whole platforms and you know you you get so many people stopping at, you know on a rope park I know they've they've got these flowers that just don't seem to die that even out of season they just seem to survive I don't know if it's a microclimate there um but you know you get people coming in and asking for cuttings and you know then it starts to engage the staff and you know the, the benefits just sort of keep rolling really which is it's really lovely to see. You're listening to Copy This, a podcast about working together on big thinking local climate action. Can I ask you, I mean, I've got a couple of questions. I mean, one is I want to talk to you about the energy, but but I'm going to come back to that. Can I, you, you talk there about a, a replicable model and, 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 and the kind of, you know, Amish barn and the kit and things. Can I just ask you a really practical question? So, so are we talking about um, things like raised beds that you would perhaps build a, a, a wooden but raised bed, bring it on site, fill it with earth. Or are we talking about garden walls, vertical growing? I mean, I haven't had the chance to visit one of the stations. So, so what does it actually physically look like? So if you close your eyes and imagine, um, first off, the trains going by and the, and the voice saying, you know, next stop. Um, and then when the voice stops, you'll hear birds singing, you'll hear you'll you'll hear bees, and you'll smell different things like flowers, or or at this time of year, you might smell some mint or or thyme, because um, there are uh, trellises, there are uh, like you say wooden planters, but there are also sections which had dirt to begin with that were already there you know Riva has been managing and, and looking after those spaces tfl infrastructure built those with network rail 50 60 100 years ago right which had been either covered in black plastic like that example that i gave earlier or had just um was rubbish we found colostomy bags syringes guns knives you name it we found it bullets shovels half cars engines and you've taken those things out replenished the soil and planted things there so you have um uh you know a vertical walls of of green 
down to uh, little raised beds that are that are germinating sweet peas to you know more hardy robust i mean alexander was down in the example that one of the station um delivery managers for for uh, charlotte is down in the last station that she previously mentioned and she was very keen that we'd have hardier plants so of course that's what that group wanted they wanted long-term invigorated plantings that would go on and so it's 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 that type of thing. So a very fully robust. Some stations have beehives, others have bat huts, some have swift nets, like um right outside. The oldest community gardening charity in the UK is Q Gardens uh, Trust, which is outside Q Gardens, and they like the gardening group. And they have we've been working with energy gardens since since 2013. And um, and so they, they have um, they have they were really interested in having local birds. So there's swift nests. There's even areas that that are specifically for um, different types of fauna and flora that are that are there. So different types of birds. They were trying to create that biodiversity sanctuaries from the outset. They never wanted to have vegetables. So there's this 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 clear narratives for each station. But it changes through the cycles of people because some people, what is it like? They say that London population has one third of its population changing every three years or so. So there's real movements of people and therefore there's real shifts in ideas. And rewilding was not an idea 10, 11 years ago. And now everybody, it's on the tip of everyone's tongue. So uh, that is really shifting the direction. Uh, Places like Finchley Central, which when we first started, uh, there was a really wonderful group of uh, churches and synagogues and mosques that wanted to come together and asked me if I would help them to put a garden together. And they, and then the people that came forward to help be a part of that garden were really keen on long-term, uh, like bushes and shrubs, you know, the the, the burning bush. But uh, the people that then came once the garden was up and running were the local schools. And there's seven different primary schools and things that pop in and do that. And so they've got a whole growing program now where we are planting new things as all edibles. So, you know, yes, it's a process. Yes, it's iterative. Yes, you come up with a solution, but that solution then keeps morphing and you have to have that process in place too to help facilitate that. And, and you know, you're called energy garden, so there must be an energy element to this. And you very briefly talked about solar running water pumps, but are you creating energy that you're using for anything else? Or is all of the energy that's created by, ed, a, a, so I'm assuming it's solar, not wind, at a station used just for that station? Well, I would say that it's energy in its two forms, community energy and renewable owned community energy. And yes, we have the first solar cooperative on the in, on the rail in the UK. And it's uh, it's on train, we put onto train depots. So there was one in Streatham, there's, there's a Streatham train station, which has hundreds of solar panels on the top of it. And that not only powers the all the needs of the of the train operator out of that large depot, which one's 24 seven, but it then 60% of that can then go onto the grid. And um, the clothing company Patagonia buys all their energy from us and they run all of their stores in the UK from energy on energy garden uh, energy. So that then generates the revenue because then we can keep going. Cause I mean, the process of having full-time staff to help deliver these engagements, mm-hmm. you can imagine working with 140 community groups, you have to have full-time engagement staff going back and forth every day. There's, this, there's actually a, a, a two officers out right now at a garden at two different gardening se- uh, sessions, which have 10 people each. So it's a it's a full time endeavor. And so we need to have a revenue and anyone can invest in that. So it's a renewable energy cooperative and everybody has one vote, one shareholding. We buy energy 
install that solar and then put it back into the rail and any excess we then sell off to 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 interested parties who want to see what we do happen further so they they can pay a, a so patagonia for instance is paying in the social premium we have other b corps who are who have been also signed up to that to buy our energy as well so I, lo- I love the intersection between energy and urban green space. I think there's a lot of magic happens where these things cross over. Agamemnon, how do you actually go about um, not only identifying the sites, but possibly getting the permission, which could be quite hard, to install a new solar panel on a, a depot or piece of infrastructure in order to deliver the, the renewable energy part to Energy Garden? Ah, so I can answer that question because, as I said earlier, the initial cooperatives were around energy and, and directly addressing fuel poverty. Remember, it was a heat or eat dilemma. And so for the first, for the first <laughs> 12 years of my um, time developing these programs, I was trying to come up with a solution. So I've built Community um, Energy England and uh, the first community energy projects on social housing in the UK, uh, in Brixton, in Hackney, and and, and was all really developing the UK national strategy and then the first um, community energy strategy for all of Europe. It was a process which I I have been um, given an MBE for. it's, it's, It's something that's taken a great deal of time to do. And the skill set is uh, negotiating lease agreements, power purchase agreements, like how do you get the first solar cooperative on the rail because you're willing to bang your head against a wall for a long time. We have a quad parti lease agreement, quad parti power purchase agreement. So all these bodies came together and spending you know, about a hundred thousand pounds on, on, on negotiating leases and power purchase agreements and all these deals to get there to that place to build templates. So it's a, it's a long arduous process to get there. But now I can say to you, I, we talk directly to the um, to the transport uh, owners, and so in, there are many different concession holders which have a longer period who run larger infrastructure. So they might have 10, 20, 30 year infrastructure leases for to the to the network rail that might have 100 years who basically respond to the Department for Transport. So we work with all those different bodies to then uh, both find those assets and then deliver the, the, the sites. And, you know, turning on a switch and saying, this power comes from Energy Garden took loads of time and energy, but just to keep it really simple, it, it means negotiating the best site, looking at where's the best solar incidence, where is the most um, constructive place to put it, where's the highest usage on site where we will be used. Mm-hmm. And then how do you agree to those elements how do, you know, for the time period? And then you have to agree how much one would pay for that energy, how much it will cost us to do it, and then tie that all up in a lovely package and then agree and deliver it to the wider community and say, hey, everybody, do you think this is a great idea? Let's invest to bring the capital to this and we will return a 5% return to you. And none of that profit will go to anyone's pockets other than to deliver more community gardening projects, more pay to credit youth training programs, more schools programs, more biodiversity sanctuaries on the London overground. Mm. I can see that there's a there's a huge benefit to the individual um, communities around those stations. And, and stations clearly are a hub, aren't they, very often for communities. What's the kind of wider benefit for you as a company for Arriva? And is it something you think could be replicated for other stations that you might manage or for other rail companies? I mean, what's the kind of upside? 
you know, I think for us that the primary objective really is around the communities and the customers that we serve. But I suppose, um, you know, wider than that, we know that the sustainability agenda is is growing massively. We know that particularly when it comes to the Department for Transport and TfL, when they're giving out these contracts, that these things are becoming more and more important. So I think that it, it serves as benefit in terms of attracting people to our network because, you know, they think our station environments are pleasant and feel safe and secure. But but also in terms of, uh, you know, us uh, wanting to win that next contract with TfL, we can, you know, hand on heart say that this is a partnership that we truly believe in. And this is what it's giving back to not only the customers in the communities, but also the environment as well. Do you think this is something that other stations could copy on other networks or does it just have to be in an urban area like London? No, I, I think it is something that, that could be copied. I, I, I think, you know, and, and Agamemnon talked a little bit about it there, you know, we, we do now have a quite well-established process, but that has taken a little bit of time to get there. So so some of the things that we've had to think about along the way are, you know, how do people work safely on our platforms? How do we give them that access? You know, the health and safety um, around the railway network is incredibly important to us. Uh, there was other things around access to water. So you don't want to be setting up um, a garden so far away from water that nobody can, you know, have the time or the energy to transport water across a platform, for example. So there's been a lot of sort of things that we've had to work through, but we've now got a really, really good process in place. We make sure that when we are talking about new projects, we think through all of these things so that we can make sure that any gardens that we set up are a real success. So I guess I would say, you know, to other other train operators, I would absolutely go for it. You know, the, the benefits are enormous. Um, there are sort of teething issues you will need to think about, but the more time you think in, put into thinking about those from the start, then the better. I imagine that you carry out regular customer satisfaction surveys and various scoring. Do you see a really clear correlation between the stations that have energy gardens and your customer satisfaction ratings? Yeah, absolutely. You can see direct links um, from not only those surveys, um, you can see it from the, the staff surveys as well. So the staff are more engaged at those locations too. Uh, we we really are absolutely delighted when we receive customer commendations. You know, I think sort of members of the public will be often often quick to let us know when something's gone wrong with the journey, but not so often to tell us when something's gone right. And actually, one of the main sources of commendations that we receive is in relation to our community gardens. And, you know, you read some of them and it really does talk about, you know, brightening somebody's day, making a real difference to somebody, uh, you know, in an environment like Agamemnon said earlier, you might not expect to find. So for us, you know, it, it's really important in terms of customer satisfaction and you absolutely can see the link. And, and what are your ambitions for the future for, for, for Energy Garden? I mean, have you got, dare I say, growth plans? <laughs> I mean, you're planning to grow the network. You do want to double the number of stations. What, what's What's realistic and feasible for you? Yeah, I mean, if we just carry on, let's say we've got a hedge fund and a seed fund. Uh, no, the plan is um, is actually to work. We are working with a bunch of, of concession holders. Um, so Govia Thames Rail, which is the go ahead group, is where we put um, the we have a whole solar program with them directly with Network Rail. Um, so, you know, following the London up the commuter lines. The whole idea of Energy Garden is that you work with the communities that are there already and that you support them and the rail provider to be like a, a, 
a centralized um, negotiating body for you that we we operate all of the technical elements you know, there's to make any of these gardens happen there's probably been about two to ten thousand pounds worth of cost just to deal with the rail operator to get the garden up and running and so therefore you need to be able to have that money to be able to help the communities to deliver what they say they want to and then once that's up and running you know organizing that organizing the groups and giving them 10 million pounds liability insurance and making sure there's lockups and all the right tools and everything is for the quota so i really see energy garden both growing across um uh, London, but also across the country, supporting all those different communities to have this conversation around sustainability, around, you know, it's truly um, our urban commons that we have been separated from. And especially now as glass and concrete and steel covers up most of our cities due to the rise of uh, everyone wanting to own uh, a asset class. Um, therefore, a lot of the green space is being covered up and no one has gardens anymore. So really talking to the to the transport providers and to the rail infrastructure and saying, how can we include people in there to have, have a, a chance to grow things? But also, it's a dialogue with nature. I mean, you can say we've all seen foxes coming in on the rail lines, or you might have seen a bee buzzing along the way. But to know that there are huge increases in these urban corridors that collect and connect our urban commons is a whole other way of thinking. And if we can have that dialogue with communities, I believe that this is a substrate, energy garden is a substrate that it can grow across the country. And that is exactly what we wanna do. Um, and it's exactly what we're inviting everybody to become a member of energy garden, to really become a part of that. And I think, as you can see from, from Charlotte, we, we their support of who we are and our support of who they are, it really enables projects like this to happen so we can support passenger journeys. So it just, if you're not interested in getting involved on in a daily basis, you can just smile at the pretty flowers and, and see the biodiversity go by. But if you do want to get involved and you can get involved in the gardens, you can be a part of the youth training program. We have a new one that opens today. Um, we also have a schools programs that are around the stations. And then we have the co-op. People can invest and become a member of that. And, and it's like, why not become a part of the, of the just transition? And you can do it on your way to work while you would have been sitting there for four to 10 minutes waiting to, you know, for the looking at, you know, the feed on your phone going, this is ridiculous. Why is this happening? I can't believe these politicians. What is this? And you can say, well, here's an actual physical thing I can do when I'm on my way to work, when I'm on my way to see friends, when, I'm, when I can know where it comes from, I know what it's doing. It's clearly something you're incredibly passionate about, but what a fantastic venture and what a great model. And I think the way you've described it, I can just see a network of energy gardens popping up all across the UK and any urban station or semi-urban station could have one. So it's a huge thank you to you both for, for being part of the podcast today. It's been really, really exciting and for painting that picture and helping us smell the mint at the station side, you know, Agamemnon and Charlotte, thank you. Rick. I, I, what a great couple of guests. Well done. Absolutely. Thank you both. Really. It's so energizing. There's so many puns that came out of this conversation, but definitely the two of you are energizing. I would love to see, obviously, selfishly, I go in and out of London reasonably often. I'd like to see more energy gardens in London stations. And I would love to see their spreading to other parts of the UK as well. I don't know whether they just need to come and see some energy gardens in London and physically see it and smell it and, and you know, take that with them. But yeah, why? Why aren't other people in other big cities around the UK following your lead? Maybe they will now. Now we've got, now we've got, well, that's what we're, we're, we're on a mission. That's what we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and we'll, we'll we'll put all of the links and things up on the on the website as well. So if people want to see stations or get in touch with both of you, they can. And mm. definitely, you know, this is this is a, a movement that will grow and grow. I'm sure as as people go back to rail and hopefully we abandon our cars even more. So yeah. so it, it's it's only an onward trajectory for this. So it's one so that we want to promote definitely yeah. as carbon copy. So we definitely yeah. get behind this and just keep raising so, awareness. Absolutely. So so thank you both so much for your time today. It's been really terrific to, to, to talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. For more information about today's episode, check out carboncopy.eco forward slash copy this. Join in the conversation by following us on Twitter and using the hashtag copy this pod. Until next time. Thank you.